This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to another edition of Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Judson Pierce, and I'm an attorney at Pierce Pierce and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. And I'm filling in today on this special Thanksgiving Eve edition for Alan Pierce, who's probably cooking some Brussels sprouts and squash right now. We're happy to bring you this uh, special Thanksgiving Eve edition with guest Ryan Ben Harris, a good friend of mine and a colleague. Ryan is an attorney in Fall River, Massachusetts, at the law offices of Deborah G. Cole. Ryan concentrates on areas of workers' compensation law, social security disability law, unemployment, and accidental disability retirement for municipal employees. He graduated from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst with a BA in communications, and he received his Juris Doctor at University of Massachusetts Dartmouth School of Law. Uh, and he's been practicing for quite a while in this area, and we're very excited that he could join us. Ryan, good morning. Good morning, Judd. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. <laughs> I'm sort of taking over a show from some other radio personality, but I will call it my show for today. <laughs> and uh, we before we get into our topic, uh, we want to thank our sponsor, Case Pacer, uh, which is practice management software dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And PI Now, find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit pinow.com to learn more. And today we're talking about millennials and how they're changing the face of workers' compensation. Uh, I'm not a millennial. I am a Gen Xer. And I'm not sure, Ryan, that you are a millennial. Are you? I am not. I am with you in the uh, the Gen X category, Judd. I am. Uh, I was born in 1979, and uh, we both just sort of missed the cutoffs of being millennials. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And you know, being right in the middle, we sort of uh, are stuck trying to decide where our uh, where our loyalty lies, whether it's with the millennials or the baby boomers or. Um, I think our generation just sort of got lost in the shuffle. Nobody really cares what we think. Yeah, we're sort of in the middle. You're right. And uh, we had some good movies in the 90s that sort of talk about our generation, but uh, we really have been forgotten about. I agree. Right. And, and Michael um, Jordan. We had Michael Jordan. Oh, we do. We do have him. Yeah. <laughs> um, our children aren't millennials. They're like iPhone children or iGeneration children. So they probably don't uh, take part in our discussion today either. But uh, millennials have gotten a lot of recognition and coverage in the media and in society for basically just their overall norms and behavior. Could you tell us a little bit about what your research has shown about what makes up the millennials today? Of course. So um, I started doing some research on this topic back at the beginning of the year. They asked me at the uh, Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, which I know uh, you are also a board member of, uh, to speak at their annual convention, and I did that this year on Halloween, and I wrote a, uh, a presentation entitled How Millennials 
are changing the face of workers' compensation, uh, subtitled The Consequences of the Gig Economy and the Young Working Class. I've always been fascinated by this subject. Um, my history, I've got uh, my prior life, I was a journalist. Um, so I've been doing some work for years uh, on the side, working for LexisNexis, writing articles for them. And every year, uh, they've sent me to the Workers' Comp Research and Institute Convention in Boston, uh, and they've been doing something on this topic for quite some time. So I've been writing on millennials and the gig economy for a good part of five years now. And what I'm finding is that a lot of the uh, industry is really being geared toward millennials and their work habits and um, how they have drastically different work habits than any other generation that we've seen before. Um, and the majority of my research, you know, began with, um, uh, you know, identifying who millennials are, uh, where they are, how many of them there are out there, uh, and then uh, gradually moved into the research of, you know, how the industry is changing as a result of these millennial characteristics. Mm-hmm. And how has your journalism background helped prepare you for this uh, uh, presentation that was very widely received, uh, well-received at uh, the Las Vegas conference last month? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, being a journalist is not a lot different than being an attorney. You know, it was sort of a um, it was sort of a natural progression from one to the other. Uh, I like to say that it was a um, that you know it was something that I was uh, planning and looking forward to. But uh, like uh, so many journalists of my uh, of my age, you know, as the industry started going in a different direction, uh, we started dying out as a as a field. Um, I didn't last very long in journalism. I only had a real journalism job for about six months before I decided to go to law school when I was 22 years old. But the basic principles of journalism, you know, uh, you know, researching stories and um, and you know, trying to be impartial, and that is sort of also you know what legal writing is based on as well. So, in this particular situation, though, you know, just looking at how millennials are, you know, different uh, as as opposed to the other generations in. Uh, the legal field, um, and specifically in workers' compensation, you know, it, it was pretty uh, interesting to see how uh, how they're they're changing our field. And I, like you said, I, I work as do you. I work in workers' comp. That's all I do. Um, and you know, there there is no question that they are changing um, how our field is going to look in the future. Yeah, I found it interesting in reading your materials uh, before our show that the millennials are actually going to be about fifty percent of the workforce pretty soon. And what will that mean for uh, the shape of our workforce and, and going forward? Yeah, that number is correct. So um, currently, uh, there's around 82 million millennials in the United States right now. You know, a millennial is defined as anybody that was born between the early 90s and the early 2000s, uh, or I'm sorry, the late 90s uh, to the early 2000s. And, and so there's about 82 million of them right now, and they are taking over the workforce by numbers. Uh, just kind of a little bit of a history. The, the term millennial was actually coined by uh, these two guys, William Strauss and Neil Howe. Um, they are historians, or actually were historians. Mr. Strauss has since passed away, but um, they have written a bunch of books over the last several decades about all of the um, generations, and they wrote this book uh, called Millennials Rising back in 2003. Uh, millennials are also referred to as uh, Generation Y, because as you indicated, our generation is Generation X, and the natural progression after that would be Generation Y. But they came up with the term millennials, and they coined it as, uh, you know, it basically sounds like anybody that was born in and around the turn of the century. So the, the word millennials just sort of stuck. But 
Um, as far as numbers go, uh, they are. They're, they're making up um, by uh, uh, the year 2020, they'll make up uh, more than any other portion of the workforce. Uh, there's, by 2020, there's going to be an expected 42 million uh, workers um, that are millennials in our uh, economy, in the United States economy, and that will be more than any other generation that's out there. So they are going to be the vast majority of who is in the workforce now. To respond to your question of how that's changing things, you really have to look at you know what millennials are and what the nature of their characteristics are. Um, and these these two guys, Strauss and Howe, uh, in their book, uh, they talk about millennials getting seven characteristics uh, personality-wise. Um, those seven characteristics they talk about are that millennials uh, are special, sheltered, confident, team-oriented, conventional, pressured, and in achieving. And, you know, if you break all those things down, you know, they said that they thought that uh, millennials uh, have a, they've been raised uh, to believe that they're special, that they are going to change the world, um, that they're vital to the nation. Um, this idea that they're sheltered comes from the idea that they have grown up in an environment where violence is much more prevalent in the media and in the news, and they're much more cognizant of it. So they, they have an expectation of safety more uh, heightened than any generation before them. Uh, they tend to be a confident bunch. Uh, it's not uncommon to hear stories uh, of younger workers coming into a workplace where uh, they're not afraid to immediately be asked to be paid the same salary as the people that have been there for a really long time. Um, interestingly, they tend to be team-oriented people. Um, young uh, workers have been raised on an idea that they prefer to work in groups as opposed to uh, working individually. I told the story in Las Vegas of how my dad, growing up, was uh, he was an industrial cleaning chemical salesman, and he would go door to door trying to sell you know, truck washes and places like that and do cold calls. Millennials don't want to do that. They prefer to work in teams, um, and uh, we're finding more millennials looking for um, team-oriented jobs. Right, and you mentioned that they're interested or thinking about safety and security, probably, you know, that that all got started with the events in, in 2001 in New York and um, Pennsylvania and Washington. But that it carries on to the present day with all the uh, almost weekly uh, shootings that we're experiencing. Interestingly enough, though, they seem to be going into jobs like the Uber jobs or the Lyft jobs, a lot of them, which... In, in some ways, do not seem like very safe types of jobs. Can you expound on that a little bit about why they're choosing these sort of rideshare type jobs? And I know that's not the only ones they're, they're looking to, but how that plays in? Sure. So, yeah, um, that, that's a big part of our economy now, is, and it's referred to as the gig economy. Um, the gig economy are these jobs that, like Uber and Lyft, and um, basically the term comes from um, the word gig. You know, musicians would would go pick up gigs and get you know jobs and just get jobs wherever they could go, and they'd go from place to place and pick up whatever job they could get. Um, and that sort of caught on, uh, and now we're talking about the gig economy. And when we talk about that, we include jobs like Lyft driving and Uber driving. So those jobs appear to be more attractive to um, the younger working class out there. The vast majority of those shared work industries, such as Uber and Lyft, are made up of by uh, young males. Fifty-five percent of those workers in those shared work industries are not just young males, but they are members of racial or ethnic minorities. And most of those uh, employees 
people report that they do it on a part-time basis, um, not full-time, either to supplement work, either doing at other jobs or uh, to try and put themselves through school. Those jobs, uh, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of stories in the news about the safety of those jobs and and how the companies are working to ensure um, that those, uh, either the passengers or the drivers themselves are safe. What's happening, though, is that the difficulty in the workers' compensation world is that uh, there are questions in, in every single state and in every single jurisdiction whether or not those particular individuals are classified as employees under the terms of their uh, workers' compensation statute. Um, and it is a real gray area, uh, you know, especially given the fact that they're working, essentially driving a car. I mean, motor vehicle accidents are happening every second of every day. Um, and when a motor vehicle accident happens, um, there is certainly, a, a, you know, a very good question of whether or not who is covering that driver for workers' compensation coverage purposes. Um, and that is a big question in, in basically every single jurisdiction in the United States when you we're discussing workers' comp at this point. Yeah, I mean, we've seen these cases uh, start to come up in Massachusetts, and I've noticed that other states are actually, um, their legislatures are, are enacting bills to either classify these drivers as independent contractors and therefore not to be availing themselves of the workers' compensation benefit system. Or in other states, I think you said New York might have been a state that uh, has uh, gone the other way and, and wanting to try to make these drivers employees. Right. Well, and, and I think from my personal opinion and what I think should be the trend is, um, first you have to look at who these workers are. And as I indicated, you know, the vast majority of them are young males. The vast majority of these workers are minorities. Uh, a lot of them, English is not their first language. So a lot of them don't truly uh, understand when they get into these jobs what the insurance system uh, is and what is available uh, to cover them. A lot of these employees will be told that uh, they can purchase workers' compensation coverage on themselves. But, again, these are part-time jobs, and if it's more expensive, they tend to not to not do that if they don't um, if they don't have the money. Uh, the other thing is the general sense around research on these particular jobs is that the average gig economy employees don't even know if they're covered under workers' compensation policy. Um, they'll be asked if they have workers' compensation if they're hurt in an accident, and they don't know the answer to that. Um, a lot of times they simply for not knowing better they rely on their car insurance. Um, but you know almost all car insurance policies the, there will be a rider in the policy that will exclude any injuries as a result of using the uh, vehicle as a taxi cab. So if these workers are expecting to put any injuries through their car insurance, they're being denied to their surprise. Um, in my opinion, you know, all of that is wrong. I mean, they shouldn't be classified as, as independent contractors. First and foremost, Uber and Lyft, they are the uh, agencies that we go to to get these jobs assigned. Um, you can't be an Uber and Lyft driver without permission from Uber and Lyft. Uber and Lyft tells them where to go. It tells them uh, where to get their customers from. Uh, they get their pay from Uber and Lyft. So this argument by Uber and Lyft that they are not employees of those companies, in the classic sense of, of an employee-employer relationship under workers' compensation, that shouldn't hold water. And, you know, workers' compensation at its core is a social justice program. And we are supposed to be out there protecting injured workers and protecting the rights of injured workers. And for these gig economy companies to have come up with something that, that is, you know, they think is a golden loophole 
to get away from protecting their workers, that's really wrong. And, and in my opinion, those are the types of people that we should be fighting to protect, and we should be going from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction to ensure that they are not um, deemed independent contractors. Uh, but if we do that, know that we're up against Uber and Lyft. Um, where I live here in Massachusetts, um, I listen to a lot of uh, radio, local radio, um, and you'll note that Uber advertises all the time on the local radio, and their advertisements are very particularly worded. They say things like, do you want to work for yourself? Do you want to make extra money? Do you want to do it on your own time? What Uber's doing is they're trying to put that, in, ingrain that into the brains of society that the Uber employees don't work for Uber. They work for themselves, and therefore they're independent contractors. And I think that's really dangerous. It's a very clever marketing strategy, is it not? And, and it really goes into the mentality that you were talking about earlier and the psychology of these millennial men and women who want to be free of the corporate structures that bound their parents and previous generations and sort of go it free and independently, like you said. Right. And that's a really good point. You know, that's another characteristic that we're seeing in millennial workers is that millennial workers are changing the way that they go to work and they're changing the face of, um, you know, what we've always known as the um, conventional, you know, mom and dad get up in the morning, drop the kids off at school and go to the office sort of work. The millennial generation uh, is very interested in working remotely and not having to go to a particular fixed place of employment. A lot of research is finding that um, millennials are much more willing to uh, take uh, pay cuts and uh, take cuts on things such as uh, 401k plans and future savings um, to be able to be happier now. Um, and working from home and working remotely uh, is something that we're seeing much more uh, both uh, for the workers and the employers are looking for ways to change uh, remote work policies. Studies have shown that employees who uh, work remotely uh, have actually increased productivity over the ones that don't. Certainly morale for employees that are able to work either from home or from a remote uh, facility is higher. And most importantly, there's joint financial incentives for both parties. Um, the employee doesn't have to drive to work. They don't have to find parking. Um, they don't have to spend you know, four hours of their day sitting in rush hour traffic. The employers don't have to purchase furniture, equipment, office space, um, and they don't, you know, they don't have to pay for uniforms and that sort of thing. So working remotely uh, is something that is getting more and more popular to the point that um, you know, most industries at this point are starting to look uh, at how they can um, change the remote work policies to include their uh, industry in uh, remote work situations. Um, in the last 10 years alone, people working from their home has risen in popularity by 80%. So it is one of the main ways that work in general is changing. People are working remotely and trying to, to find jobs where they can work from home. Well, I want to get further into that topic. Let's take a break for a message from our sponsors. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, 
we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, CasePacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see CasePacer in action, contact us today at CasePacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. And we're back uh, with guest uh, attorney Ryan Ben Harris. Uh, Ryan, before uh, the break, we left off about the topic of working remotely. And I'm curious, what are the general principles uh, with workers' compensation coverage for people who do get hurt, say, in their homes doing uh, remote business? That's a really excellent question, Judd. Basically, you know, that is coming up all over the place now. Um, this generation, you know, the Generation Y, the millennials, they are, um, as I indicated before, they're trying to work remotely and work from home. Their generation has been deemed what's called the cutback generation. Um, you know, they're they're cutting back on things that you know we saw when we were younger and our parents saw when we were younger um, as essential parts of the um, of society, and they're not spending money on things. And you know, one of those things is is going to and from work. You know, driving to work, spending money to go places. And interestingly, you know, millennials are are cutting back on other things. I mean, you, there's a lot of reports that the marriage rate is is drastically declining because millennials don't have as much money. Um, weddings are fewer and far more between. They're often cheaper. And uh, there's there's other things that they're they're cutting back on. And the most predominant one is they're trying to work from home. We're seeing situations where people that are working from home in all sorts of industries um, are getting hurt, uh, either working from home or getting hurt at a remote work place. And there's questions of whether or not there's coverage for that under workers' compensation. Here's the good news. The good news is that the vast majority of jurisdictions are saying that that should be covered. Um, I don't think, you know, there's there's really no jurisdiction that we know of that says, well, if you're not, you know, at the job site, then you, you can't get hurt. Um, or if you're not at the office, you can't get hurt. So uh, most most of the research I've done has indicated that uh, jurisdictions and statutes are covering injured workers when they do work remotely in their homes. What it is creating is uh, a lot of extra work for the insurance industry to go to the employer's and really encourage them to create remote work policies in an effort to lower these at-home work-related industries. They're telling the employers to make sure that these employers have ergonomic uh, environments set up in their home or, um, you know, know where your employee is working, you know, know that they're not working in an unsafe environment. They're also trying to make sure that they're having, you know, uniformity in these policies for all of the, their workers that work at home um, so that they can sort of monitor what's going on in there. You know, the average worker uh, doesn't think um, that if they are uh, injured in their own home that it could be a workers' compensation case. But the reality is that if what they were doing 
you know, arises out of and in the course of their employment under that particular workers' compensation statute, then, of course, it's covered. So the employers are forced uh, to look into that to, to make sure that um, those injuries are uh, protected. The other thing is that, you know, if you're working from home um, and whatever you're doing in there, if, if you get hurt or somebody else gets hurt, um, you know, it's the same situation where the Uber and Lyft drivers are injured in their own car. A lot of home insurance policies, uh, you know, will ask now if you are doing a work-related thing while you're injured in your home or while somebody else is injured in your home because uh, they can find, you know, some sort of liability elsewhere as opposed to under your own home insurance policies. So is it possible that in some jurisdictions, some states, a worker could be injured um, while in the course of his or her employment and they're caught in between? And they really have no recourse under the law uh, because the workers' compensation insurer is deeming them to be independents. And when they try to put it through private means, they're shut off there, too. Yeah, that's a really scary thought, and it is happening, um, and especially in the situations with not just Uber and Lyft, but Airbnb, which is another uh, sort of one of these shared economy things. Um, Airbnb, what that is, is uh, you can go online and um, you can put your house up for uh, to be used as a hotel. A lot of these you know, places all over the world, that is becoming a big source of income for, for folks who own property in certain places. Um, you know, they, they rent out a piece of property that they own all year round, uh, and then, um, you know, they upkeep it, they maintain it, and then someone gets hurt. So uh, whether it be one of your guests or you yourself, you know, most home insurance policies, much like most uh, automobile policies, there is a rider in the policy that says that if you're using your home as a hotel, they won't cover the people that are in there because you're not supposed to be using your home for commercial policies because, as you know, we all learned in law school, there are certain uh, standards of care and duty of care uh, that apply uh, when you are just a homeowner bringing a guest in your house as opposed to when you're running a hotel um, and you're running, uh, inviting the public in. And uh, that is creating a real problem. Uh, for these people who are having injuries uh, in these situations. Um, you can be working in your house, uh, either repairing something or um, tending to something as a result of um, an Airbnb uh, rental, and you can be hurt. And the homeowner's insurance will then say, well, you know, we, we weren't expecting, it wasn't foreseeable that this type of injury could happen, and therefore we're not going to cover you. And on top of that, you know, Airbnb, who's a company that you can list your home under, they're not going to admit that the homeowner that's listing their property is one of their employees, even though they're maintaining the property for guests to come and go. Um, and obviously that happens more commonly under Uber and Lyft. Uh, car accidents happen all the time. And if um, Uber and Lyft are not deemed the employer and the, the employee has not taken out a workers' compensation policy on himself, because car insurance could uh, deny the claim, and that would leave that particular individual uh, without any coverage for the accident or for his own personal injuries. Uh, so it is a really scary thought. It is scary. And what is the avenue for change if there is going to be people left in the cold, so to speak, without proper coverage? Is it through the courts that we're going to see some change happening or perhaps through legislature uh, means? And, and how will millennials act in either of those arenas? Specifically, 
are they political and do they want to get engaged in this fight? Right. That's a really good question, and I'll, I'll sort of handle the first part of the question first. I believe strongly that, you know, and I, because I'm, I'm a bleeding-heart liberal at heart and because uh, I, I represent injured workers and that's all I represent, that I, you know, I believe the legislature should step in and, and, and protect these people. Um, I believe that every jurisdiction should indicate that these shared work industries in the gig economy, that the employees are employees of the company that, that they are using to get work from. Now, the good news is that millennials are very much uh, politically active um, and more so than uh, the uh, generations before it. Millennials, uh, given their age, um, tend to uh, be registering as uh, about 40% of millennials are registering as independent voters. So they are tending to say that they're right down the middle. However, uh, the Washington Post indicated last year that 59% of millennials affiliate with the Democratic Party or lean democratically. Uh, that's compared to only 32% of millennials that lean toward the GOP or identify themselves as Republicans. As I think we've seen in, in recent political past, the Democratic Party and the, independent, the uh, liberal uh, method of thinking is that there should be more social justice programs created to protect those that might have less access to the courts uh, and less access to help. So I think what that is saying is that millennials will typically support the notion that the federal government or the state government should be stepping in and ensuring that people are protected if they're injured at work under these shared work economies. Um, and if you look toward something that's pretty similar, uh, millennials are fighting particularly hard uh, to try and uh, establish that it's the, it should be the federal government's responsibility to make sure that all Americans have health coverage. Um, most millennials, a vast majority of millennials, believe that the federal government should be um, taking control as to making sure that everyone has health insurance. So I think the millennial method of thinking is that um, it should be the, the legislature, it should be the government that steps in and says, you know, these people work for these companies, and they are not independent contractors. And I, th I think that as voters, they would come out in droves to support that opinion. Fascinating point there. Political activism is likely to be up, given the recent uh, uh, events that we've seen in elections, but also union uh, membership. And seemingly, the unions are less strong than they were in previous generations. And is that something that millennials will have to deal with and combat or say, you know, we need a new style of union here to protect these newer jobs? Yeah, I think, um, I, I don't know when the union protection seemed to weaken um, in general, but I don't think that's a, that is a methodology that millennials would stand by. I think actually um, the idea that um, labor unions fighting on behalf of the workers uh, is something that uh, millennials would strongly uh, support. You know, the labor unions that were established in the early 1900s, uh, they were done so to try to uh, bring the workers uh, to the table to have a fair negotiation, to have fair negotiations with the bosses. And that is something that, you know, millennials are, are certainly interested in. I mean, I think we're all interested in that. The difference is that I think millennials are more willing to instead come up with, as you indicated, a different type of way to do that. Because I think 
they're more likely to um, want to, instead of going to the unions and asking for the um, conventional benefits that, that unions used to negotiate, again, 401Ks, health insurance premiums, uh, that sort of thing, they would be more likely to negotiate quality of life uh, benefits now, you know, being able to uh, work remotely, have have different hours as opposed to Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, they would be more willing to do that than they would be to fight for um, some of the things that we've historically seen uh, in the past. Uh, there will be more millennials uh, by next year, 2019. Uh, the millennials will outnumber the, the number of baby boomers in the working industry. I mean, the baby boomers are retiring at, at an alarming rate, and the uh, millennials are coming into the uh, workforce at an even faster rate. Uh, the difference is that when the baby boomers came into the workforce, they were very concerned with their retirements and what was going to happen to them at the end of their working lives, whereas millennials are much more concerned with the amount of debt that they've incurred now as opposed to what will happen at the end of their lives. Millennials are showing more educational debt than any generation, and it's specifically millennials in the United States. Um, the millennials in the United States have this level of educational debt that um, even people in my generation and your generation can't comprehend. It is not uncommon for uh, millennials to come out of college and, and higher education with between a quarter of a million and a half a million dollars in debt. And the idea that, that their working life is, is going to be anything other than paying off that debt is sort of not in the back of their mind when they're 20, 25 years old. So, Are they the first generation to have less wealth than the previous generation? Is that a fact? Yes, and that's actually an amazing fact that uh, was reported uh, a couple of years ago. Millennials are the first generation in American history, uh, based on the amount of debt that they have, to be considered poorer than the generation before them, um, or more specifically, the two generations before them. So uh, Generation Xers and Millennials uh, sort of are clumped into that situation where they're looking at the amount of debt that they have coming out of college. And, and it is educational debt. I mean, that is the number one type of debt that millennials uh, will cite as to what is their motivational factor to going to work. And that educational debt puts them at such a, a deficit and puts them so behind the eight ball that they really can't think to do anything else other than uh, pay off that debt. So that, you know, they, they want to be happy in life. They want to live a, a, you know, a happy, prosperous life. But they want to pay off their debt first, because if they can't pay off their debt, then they can't step into happiness. So what we see are millennials taking steps to be less conventionally happy than the two generations before it. Um, as I indicated before, uh, millennials are not getting married. Um, the marriage rate has declined steadily, and that is specifically because uh, weddings are uh, so expensive. The average wedding in the United States, uh, as of 19, uh, as of uh, 2016, the average wedding cost $28,000. And millennials just don't want to spend. Yeah, it's crazy. They just don't want to spend money on that. They're also not buying houses. The uh, amount of millennials looking to, to buy houses has uh, drastically decreased. They just don't have the money to put down on on a house, um, and they're in the massive amount of debt. Millennials, uh, uh, millennial home ownership in, in particular, um, has dropped 8% uh, lower than Generation X home ownership and uh, Baby Boomer home, home ownership. 
homes are more expensive now than they were. I mean, how many of us have talked to our grandparents who told us that they paid $2,000 for their first home? Um, <laughs> and millennials are, you know, looking at their first home costing them, you know, depending on where they want to live, anywhere from you know, $50,000 at the cheapest to half a million dollars for a cheap home or, or an inexpensive home in, in a big city. As a result, uh, you know, there's not as many, uh, millennials aren't, aren't having children. They're delaying childbearing uh, because they're not getting married somewhat or because they can't afford to have children. Um, but uh, they, whenever they're asked about these things, um, they always cite the educational debt. Um, and, and we see it in, in, in even minor aspects of life. Uh, millennials are, are doing something called cutting the cord, which you've probably heard of uh, as far as you know, entertainment purposes. They're, they're canceling cable. They're not buying cable. Um, and instead, they're, they're looking at streaming services such as Netflix and Hulu um, because they're cheaper. Uh, and as a result, that has reduced the amount of television that's being watched in the United States. Um, classic primetime television on the, the major four networks is at uh, an all-time viewing low, despite the fact that there's more televisions in houses uh, in the last uh, 10 years than there ever have been in the history of the United States. And that's because people are finding cheaper alternatives to even doing that. Wow. We're working from home more. We're not going to the movies or going out because we have all this educational debt. And if we get hurt, we might not be covered. Things aren't looking too <laughs> optimistic these days. I guess my fear, and I would love for you to end on this, uh, on your response on this, Ryan, would be if someone is injured while they're working for under the direction of another and they're not covered and they have all these debts to specifically school debt to deal with, what is one to do? What are we to do as a society if that is more and more the case? Well, I, I think that's a really, really good question, and I think there's so many different levels. You know, you can peel back the levels of, of an onion and figure out, you know, where a lot of these problems start. You know, I, I am a very firm believer in the idea that uh, higher education needs to become more cost-effective. Um, you know, there are politicians out there who are now running on platforms uh, to make college uh, free for people who uh, can access it. I don't know. I don't know where the uh, where the idea begins to you know, hold. Who is held responsible when you know colleges and universities are so expensive that the people that are coming out of them are not only unable to afford uh, to go to work, but they you know they can't find work. You know, finding work is as difficult as it's always been. I think it's really important that you know we change the way that. Uh, college and, and higher uh, education is perceived as far as money purposes. Um, I, we need to make it more cost-effective, and we need to have more people coming out of college that are not so crippled by debt that they can't live their lives. Um, I feel terribly for these people, and I really do. And I mean, I have, I have debt as well, and we all have debt, but I can't imagine, you know, working as hard as you can to get through high school, to get through college, and, you know, your entire life after you get out of there is trying to pay off getting through college or getting through trade school because it was so expensive. I really believe that that's where it starts, um, is to reduce uh, the cost of, of higher education and make it more accessible and more affordable to, to everybody that wants to go there. Further from that, I truly believe that we need to establish laws that protect uh, employees of the gig economy. 
Um, we cannot allow uh, corporations, major corporations that are becoming major players in society, such as Uber and Lyft, uh, where they're, they've become essential to how people get around and essential to how we function. We can't let those companies walk in and change the fact that people should be protected from getting hurt at work simply because it you know, it makes it easier for those companies to not have to worry about that. Um, that shouldn't be a benefit. We shouldn't be creating employers that can create situations where they don't have to cover injured workers that are injured uh, on the job. And if the companies aren't taking care of these people, then it's going to land on society to do it. Um, you know, if, if if you're injured at work and your company doesn't cover you for workers' compensation, Society needs to step in and, and make sure that that person is taken care of, especially in these gig, with these gig economy employees, who studies have shown that you know they're not, they don't have the level of education or knowledge uh, to understand the insurance system and how insurance works, and we shouldn't expect it of them to know those things, especially when they're asked whether or not they know if they're covered under workers' compensation, and they really don't know the answer to that question. That's not fair to those people. We as a society have to protect those people. We have to go out um, and make sure that those people don't even have to think about whether they're covered for workers' compensation, that there's workers' compensation for those people without them having to worry about taking care of that problem. Because the reality is, if you're working a job as an Uber driver to put yourself through college, and college is already that expensive, you're going to put yourself even further behind the eight ball if you sustain an injury in that job that's not covered under workers' compensation policy because now you're going to have your college debt and you're going to have debt from the accident. And that's a really scary thought. So I think that there needs to be a lot of uh, work at making sure uh, that we reduce the debt of um, these young individuals coming out of school uh, and that we educate the public as to uh, these industries uh, and making sure that the public puts an onus on these industries to make sure that their employees are covered under their workers' compensation policies. Well, here, here, and I really want to take this uh, opportunity to thank you, Ryan Ben Harris, attorney in Fall River, Massachusetts, and nationwide now, as he's appearing in uh, various states with this uh, very interesting research and presentation on millennials and the gig economy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ryan. Thank you for having me, Judd. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I'd like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in uh, on this Thanksgiving Eve edition of uh, Workers' Comp Matters. I'd like to thank our sponsors as well, Case Pacer, the practice management software dedicated to the busy trial attorney. Learn more, go to casepacer.com and PI Now. Find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit pinow.com to learn more. Please join us for our next show, perhaps with the regular host, Alan Pierce, or perhaps with me if I do take over his chair permanently. Uh, And listeners, please go out and make it a day that matters. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matter shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.